solve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. Hey everybody, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. This is part one of a two-part series on social media and its effect on the brain. We tie in a little bit of the dopamine system. We discuss uh, how social media can be an addiction and the peculiarities of it because there's no external chemical component that causes our addictions to it. We talk about a little bit about mitigation strategies for how to restrict your screen time in a healthy way. We also branch out in some really interesting topics such as being the hero of your own story, imposter syndrome, among other topics. We're also going to do a part two, which are going to touch on certain things such as ADHD and social media and highlight some of the positive benefits because there are some and they do need to be recognized. Last note before I turn you guys loose, we are in the description for every episode, I've gone back and added it retrospectively, but in all the future episodes as well, going to have Christy Bohan and I's Mitchell Crute's bios and qualifications in the descriptions for each episode. So if anybody wants to, you know, look and see where Christy and I feel like we have the credentials to be speaking from where we do and or want to use any of the ideas presented or any of the, the points that we bring up or to try and find evidence to, to either confirm or, or invalidate our claims, you can use those credentials in the in bios in the descriptions to, to form a rough citation and then, you know, we can go from there. Other than that, a little bit of housekeeping note. Um... Here's part one of social media in the brain. I hope you enjoy. I have like two small subtopics in mind. Um, and then my personal observations. So since you picked the topic, do you want to start us off? Absolutely. Um, my goal for today was to talk about social media and a couple of really weird things that have been like noticed by the medical community resulting from social media, as far as I can tell, like it's, you know, there's no proof, but um, yeah. So I think there's a couple things, like when you bring up social media, you immediately think of like the bad, like it's addictive, it's harmful, it changes your self-image. Um, and that's kind of the only reason why it gets brought up in like a, uh, I don't know, in a serious manner. It's like, here's all the reasons mm-hmm. that it's bad. Um, I don't think it's all bad. Uh, I think it's mostly weird. And, uh, you know, some people can get on social media every single day for hours and hours and not have any detrimental effects. And then other people, um, they really struggle with it. So I've seen um, the few studies that I've looked at um, mentioned the 
self-reported negatives, and then always try to emphasize the, what's the term? The unrealized potential. Mm-hmm. So what were, uh, what were uh, some of the things that you stumbled across? Uh, well, there was a couple of articles that I read that were referring to something that comes from TikTok usually. And TikTok is like videos and they're usually very short videos and you like scroll through a million videos and that's how you interact with TikTok. And your algorithm gets set up so that it only shows you videos that you like. And what's happening to some people is that when they watch their TikTok, they start to develop motor tics and vocal tics as a result of seeing other people with tics on TikTok. So people who have never had Tourette's um, and who have different symptoms than Tourette's are popping up with tics after seeing other people with ticks, which there's a couple of articles published on it and they're mostly just like documenting the phenomenon. There's not any like, here's the treatment, here's what causes it. Um, there was one article that I read about how a clinician could differentiate between uh, legitimate Tourette's diagnoses and um, what they described as um, what was the term they used? Uh, tick-like behavior was what they used. So if you have tick-like behavior versus Tourette's, and uh, it was interesting to see the differences that they were noticing. Um, and it's, I mean, just the fact that it's even happening at a high enough level to have to have medical papers written on it is crazy. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's I really, just dove really into that. Um. Well, because you see the other forms of social media making fun of the TikTok teens. Right? I don't know if you've seen any of the shorts or whatever, but it's like the dad that pretends he's his daughter in like the grocery store and they'll walk through the aisles and he'll just do like a quick section of a TikTok dance and then move on and yeah. he's just compulsive about it nonstop. So do you think that, and this is purely speculative at this point, because I, I, we haven't dived into the specifics of the research you looked at. Do you think that solidarity and mimicry, like, like, like psychological group inclusion, they start manifesting the behaviors of the groups that they're participating in, even if it's vicariously? Yes. And... The reason I think that is because like when, even if it feels like you're not in control of your behavior, you probably are. And all, you know, the kind of example I'm thinking of is like, when I get startled, I would say a cuss word or, oh my God. And that is not like a biological response. My reaction is a bi biological response to that like startle. But what I say, you know, I don't come out with Mandarin out of nowhere, but someone who yeah. does speak Mandarin would say something in Mandarin. So that kind of like flinchy 
everything we do is learned basically. So yeah, I think that these people saw it and their brain was like, boom, we're going to do that now. And it's, um, it all made me think of other times where there's been like contagious, purely psychological, <laughs> like bodily movement. And, uh, I texted you earlier today, if you had ever heard of the dancing plague of 1518. And, yeah, and, and I just, I remember like vague glimpses of it from like obscure documentaries from way in my youth. Yeah. That's, that's about it. Well, there's not, there's not any details about it beyond probably what you've heard that somewhere in France, a town started dancing uncontrollably and they eventually stopped but no one knew why it happened. It was contagious in the sense that if you were in contact with someone else who was dancing, you would start dancing as well. And as far as we could tell, it was probably purely psychological. They didn't all catch like a, a virus. They didn't all do the same drugs. Uh, they probably just came from their mind, which, you know, to me, there's like a historical context where this could happen. It's not a sign that like our generation or kids these days are weaker. This is a thing that could happen. Um, so well, we're seeing especially it now. if we contextualize it historically, that's 500 years ago. So that's still at a time where they were like, and they, I mean, most of humanity we're still convinced that if you were sick, it's because you had ghosts in your blood or you were infected by bad spirits or you needed to get your karma right or any, any of those other, um, what we would consider now pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. But what, what it, what it makes me think of is the phenomenon of people participating in groups. So you can think of an inauguration speech or a particularly captivating sermon at a church or even a protest and a riot. When people are in groups, they tend to modify their behaviors to fit within the boundaries established by the group, whether it's spoken or unspoken. Now, what I mean by that with the specific examples, especially with like the inauguration speech and the sermon, standing ovation. It only takes like two or three people to, and then if you don't follow along, you feel like the odd person out. So whether people agree or not, chances are they're going to stand up and at least stand, if not ovate too. You can see it also too with the wave in like football stadiums. It only takes mm -hmm. a small percentage of people to initiate it. And most of the remaining people will participate whether they want to or not. Same thing, protests and riots. The... The way I explain it to my students, because we, we talked about this a little bit in class the past week or two, um, is that as the boundaries shift of the groups that we're participating in, our boundaries and sense of normalcy shifts as well. It oscillates. And the more it oscillates, the more normal 
can be moved either you know left or right along along the x-axis um perfect example political spectrum as the national average of the political spectrum shifts to the left or to the right your position on the spectrum might not change but your position relative to your original spot has i yeah this is something that we've done for ever it's something that our brains obviously do and now we're seeing it in a different way with social media um the other example i can think of kind of similar to uh, like a riot was like the who concert crush where or, or the beatlemania yeah where uh like the who concert crush was everyone trying to get into the same double doors to see the concert and in an effort to do crowd control they only opened two doors and everyone got crushed <laughs> and there was like just dead people after everyone got inside the venue because they couldn't stop and they couldn't do it orderly. And it was, you know, no one's at fault. No one tried to push their way to the door saying, I'm going to kill the person in front of me, but it happened. And it's just with a lot of people doing the same thing, it can get very dangerous very quickly. And I don't think, I don't know. Ticks are kind of a tough topic because you don't want ticks, but you're going to be, if you have ticks, you're going to be just fine, like physically. Yeah. So it's okay. But if the boundaries of the group that you're associating with includes them, then you are inclined to reproduce them. We are yes. evolutionarily designed to fit into groups. We're also evolutionarily designed to be able to very easily see who does not fit in. Because historically, those people that do not fit in are a threat to the group. Right? Thinking hunter-gatherer days, if someone couldn't fit to some degree in the family group, then they were liable to fail on a hunt and not produce or make a mistake and hurt somebody or be malicious against you because they didn't have the intense familial ties that everybody else did All right we've talked about this before that's why we can see we're evolved to have smaller um, irises and more whites of our eyes so that way we can see what everybody else is attending to because they might be looking at danger or they might be looking at something of importance and if we can't tell the intentions of a stranger in a group then their intentions might be malicious and we won't have a defense against it so interesting because there's a lot of like one of the main things that like social psychology played with when everyone was doing like random social psychology experiments was like if everyone in the room looked uh ev everyone else would look even if they weren't a part of the study um yeah. and you can cause like traffic buildups and you can cause panic if you start reacting to something that's not there and all it takes is yeah, one other well, person I mean, to start doing it and it spreads it's contagious 
Because for all intents and purposes, and I talk about this with my students as well, for all intents and purposes, if you don't know, it could be anything. It could be nothing, but it could be a freaking dragon coming down to eat you, right? You don't know. It's like Schrodinger's cat. Until you open the box, it's a super superposition of both alive and dead, right? So until it's observed, it is both. It does include all of the presumable options. Same thing. That's why, that's why people are scared of the dark evolutionarily. Because you can't see, you can't verify. You know that there's a 0.001% chance of there being a monster or a life-threatening anything in the shadows of your own home or taking the trash out. But our ancestors from our collective past that did respond with fear, survived for that 0.001%. And those that didn't exhibit that fear did not. And over enough generations, that makes a big enough gap of evolutionary advantage that those with the fear survived to pass those genes on and those without the fear became extinct. Mm -hmm. There is a, um, I watched a documentary about these archaeologists who found a girl skeleton um, like in the Amazon in a cave and it was like the oldest they had ever found in the area and they realized that she died because she went into the cave and it was dark and she probably got lost and probably just died in there um, and yeah that girl was I think they dated her body as like 16 and uh, she didn't pass her genes on <laughs> and uh, she went in the cave mm -hmm. and everyone who didn't uh, or had the sense to not go deep enough to get lost uh, did not die in the cave. So there is, uh, I mean, that's more recent. But. Which, is, which makes it particularly interesting circling back around to our specific topic of social media because mm -hmm. what does social media do? even before they instituted the algorithms, although especially after, mm -hmm. what it does is it plays on our deeply rooted reptilian brains, group affiliation survival tactics with modern day technology. That's what makes it so pernicious. That's why teenagers physically cannot put it down. We had the internet go down for the first half of the day first semester about October, November, and the amount of ninth grade students that I had that exhibited textbook withdrawal symptoms because they couldn't log on. They couldn't get onto to Twitter or TikTok or anything else that they do. They couldn't get on their WhatsApp. And I mean, they were fidgety. They couldn't sit still. They couldn't sit down. They had... They, everything shy of like the cold sweats they were irritable their patients were like textbook withdrawal symptoms it's like taking um cigarettes away from someone that smoked for 40 years cold turkey physical mm -hmm. responses to being unable to get their group affiliation fix and they're they probably are reacting to I mean, it's tough to say like this, there's not a legitimate diagnosis in the DSM-5. I know they're working on one for like internet addiction and video game addiction. And it's tough to say like there's brain chemical differences. Like 
with smoking cigarettes, yes, there's a chemical difference because you're adding that chemical. But with those kinds of addictions, they you're only using the own your chemicals from your own brain. So it's difficult to say like you have a problem, you don't have a problem because your brain is naturally creating, you know, dopamine when you pick up your phone and you see yeah. a like on your post. And see, it's, that's it's that's tough. interesting because technically what we're describing is a chemical addiction without a chemical. Yeah. Because ease of access means that it's just as readily available and through habituation, both of the dopaminergic system and the source of that dopamine release through habituation, they, that is their go-to when their body pings them and says they need a dopamine release. And it's tough to say, like, you've gone too far, you've done something unnatural, now you have an addiction, you have a problem, versus someone who is using, like, heroin to get a dopamine release um, that is, you know, too far, you have an addiction. But it's just something that your brain is going to do. And it's, yeah, I, I'm on the fence as to if, like, liking social media is a problem. Um, I think there should be an age limit because, you know, you wouldn't put a bag of candy in front of, you know, a 10 year old because they're going to eat the whole thing. You wouldn't give a 10 year old unlimited access to the internet because they're going to use it constantly. And at a certain point you gain, you know, the skills to only have a couple pieces of candy and then put the bag up and save it for later. And it's the same thing with social media, I think. But maybe not. Maybe it is more sinister than no, candy. No, 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 no. I, I would, it, it's, I would agree with both that it is more sinister than candy. Um, but it's not social media as a phenomenon in and of itself that makes it more pernicious. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I would agree with you that age restrictions are good because where are the filters? How do you ensure when you give your twelve-year-old their phone that's wireless internet only, so they don't have cellular data or whatever how can you ensure that they're looking at 12 year old age appropriate things and only those things you can't they're they're more tech savvy than us because this is the world they're growing up in they intuitively know how to navigate these spaces better than we do which means they intuitively know how to get around any firewalls to find all those loopholes way better than we can impose those firewalls And that's something that we're seeing a lot with, to put it short, grooming. Mm. It's it's always been, you probably too young to remember, but I remember in in the 90s, in the early 2000s, when like AOL Instant Messenger and stuff like that was first becoming, like chat rooms were first becoming a thing. That was the biggest fear grown adults posing as minors making friends with other minors and convincing them to meet up with them secretly at some place to bring whatever money they can get their hands on abducting these people potentially raping and killing them right going back to our fear of the dark thing you know that might be a 0.5 percent 
of all interactions are pernicious like that. But when you're talking about a population of 330 million people, that half of a percent is still a huge number. Too many. And I think even if that one particular like groomer doesn't get all the way to like, now you're in my basement level, it certainly makes you susceptible for the next one or someone, you know, in person, it's definitely not healthy and not something you want no, someone to be no, exposed no, no. to. It's, it's probably extremely psychologically destabilizing. Well, yeah. To have someone feeding these things about how your world is X, Y, and Z when it really needs to be A, B, and C, knowing that that is a full fabrication to get you to believe a certain specific set of axioms to act upon those. That's something that that I did read a little bit about. Most of the articles that I looked into dealt with the topic of construct validation. Mm-hmm. And going back to the bag of candy and whether social media is worse than that, this is what I was alluding to, that social media is more pernicious than the bag of candy in front of the 10-year-old, but not because of what it is, mainly because of how other people use it. Right. Right. Not we, We're talking about that, that psychological destabilization, so that construct validation. So what we do, we, we create these conceptual constructs for how to navigate our infinitely complex world. Right. I don't have to teach myself every single morning how to put my pants on. Mm-hmm. I have that set of procedural knowledge and that participatory knowledge that I distill down into one leg, next leg button. Right. If I were to sit down and describe to you every single step physiologically that I had to do to put my pants on, I could write a freaking thesis out of it. But that's not what we do. We distill it down into bite-sized pieces. We construct these heuristics with which to navigate the world. When people get onto social media and they're either accidentally or intentionally living these double lives, trolls, perfect example, arguing with people not because they disagree with them, but because they think it's funny when they pretend to disagree with them and they get super heated about it. And what you're actually doing is you are invalidating the other person's psychological constructs for how they understand the world and how they fit into it deliberately. And that has potentially long lasting effects. It does. um, Because when we have an interaction on social media, our brain does not have like you're talking to another person emotionally as far as your brain knows they're right there and it's we don't have like a switch to say this person isn't near me this person doesn't actually impact my life this person you know I could turn it off and never see them again that is not something that we naturally do because that wouldn't happen like out in the wild (laughs) if you're having an argument with someone you have to resolve it um you feel like you have to resolve it and come to some sort of conclusion because we, our brain doesn't recognize that that person's not really there. Yeah. Two things on that. First of all, that's why really good relationship advice is never go to bed angry. Cause what mm-hmm. that means is that means you have something unsettled and it's mm-hmm. going to eat at you. Don't leave things unsettled. The next thing I'll say about that is, um, 
shoot, I think I might have lost it. No. No, 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 no. It, it's back. I got it. Um, psychologically speaking, like like you were saying, what's happening in my brain right now, talking to you is exactly the same thing happening as if I were talking to you face to face. Yeah, your because, MRI because, would look no different. Yeah, because of those heuristics. And here's why um, Jordan Peterson explains this a lot on his podcast. Uh, we might have to do this in two sections. Um, that's okay. No, that, yeah, if we need to log out and log back in, that's fine. Um, but what, what you're just like you were saying, your brain doesn't recognize that I'm not talking to you. Even if you were standing right in front of me, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to my construction of who I think you are. I'm talking to an icon on my desktop interface that represents you. I, I, I don't see your atoms. I don't see the subatomic electrostatic charges that hold you together as a person. I don't see the biological processes that are operating. I cannot see you thinking, although I can see your micro expressions in your face that suggest that you are, right? And because we have those constructs that act as heuristics, what that means is it's difficult to distance yourself mentally, cognitively, the same way that you're distanced physically. I think that's true. And well, it's definitely true. We work with what we got. And like, you know, if you're blind, and you can't, you've never seen a person, your relationships are the exact same as someone who can see. Um, it's not really important what sensory input you're getting, like if you can smell the other person, um, it's as long as there's enough there to have that conversation, it's going to feel real, um, or it's going to feel uncanny Valley. And you're like, this person is a robot. Um, but there's going to be that point where you're like, okay, this person's real. Uh, plus we do that with everything, you know, like when I talk to my dog, there are times where I'm like, he really just understood me or he gets me. Um, so whether or not it's true, we think that, I think that's something that we do as people as humans yeah. is, is just enough is there to assume this is a human and that works for us. Yeah. Well, because again, going back to evolution or evolutionary psychology, we are designed, I don't want to say designed like the blind watchmaker or anything like that, but we have inherited a set of evolutionary blueprints that prime us to making the most time efficient decisions with the highest probability of accuracy possible. Mm -hmm. the, the concept in psychology is um, decision threshold, right? At what point have you received enough information to make a probabilistically accurate response? Mm -hmm. right? Because the person that, and going back to your reflexes being scared, you say, oh my God, evolutionarily our collective ancestors that didn't do that, that didn't respond in a time efficient manner, even if it's incorrect, tended to get eaten more than the people that did. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, we inherited that. Um, and I was, I was, we, that, oh, I was going to say, do you think we also inherited, I don't know how you would inherit this, but do you think that we inherited 
not going quietly, I guess. Like our starter responses tend to be loud and eye-catching, um, which probably I think, is, a, I don't know how that, I guess if you survive, that gets passed down. Well, because I think that's true because what did they say as like the only rule of thumb if you're hiking along a trail and you see a bear that sees you or a mountain lion that sees you, make yourself as big and loud as possible. Mm-hmm because that'll give you more chance than any other response to make them think twice. Because again, they're conditioned through evolution to be like, oh, there's that small chance I might not make it. It is inherently life-threateningly dangerous to be a predator because every Mm -hmm. time you eat, something is going to fight you for its life. Mm -hmm. So I I do, I think that's where that might come from. It could also be... Um, the first thing I thought of was if I startle at like, let's say a giant snake gets in my tent and I scream and it lets everyone else know that there's a tent, there's a snake in the tent, they might come and help me before I die. Um, but other than that, they know to get away because, oh, she's a lost cause. That's a big snake. I'm out of here. So it's, it could be. If you survive, <laughs> then it really helped you. But if you don't yeah. survive, it at least let everyone else know. Because if we all just kind of took it, then I think it that's let right. the group know there's an issue. Well, and that's what I don't know. I, I was going to go a different direction, but I'm not going to now. I will say on top of that, we are primed to survive at all costs. Right. Take, um, anybody in a life threatening situation, their adrenaline kicks in. Now they're capable of superhuman feats that they, did not know they were capable of before they found themselves in that situation. You hear stories all the time of parents lifting cars off of their kids or that soldier in war that achieved godlike status for a half an hour because something happened, boom, that light switch hit and they overperformed on every single metric. Now, I assume that the metabolic cost for that is through the roof which is why we have that light switch that only gets triggered in those certain situations. Because if we operated at that high velocity cognitively and physically all the time, we would burn ourselves out and be dead by 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people do that on purpose, like, you know, extreme kayakers and um, like people who base jump kind of fall into that trap of like, this is peak performance. I am, doing human feats that no one else can do. And there are, there are no old base jumpers. Uh, so that's, that's definitely true. And some people still do it. I think there's a fine line um, for our species. There's a fine line and there's people on both ends too far where they're not taking enough risks and they're sedentary and they're. Um, well, I, I I, yeah, I, I was going to say um, two things about that. First thing is, we all have a psychological need to be the hero of our own story. Mm -hmm. And heroes need to have conflict. Otherwise you don't have opportunities to be heroic. 
Now that conflict can take surrogate forms, extreme kayaking, um, professional football. It can take more literal forms like soldiering, MMA fighter, something like that. But that, that, that is, that's why all of our grand narratives in every single religion ever has to deal with conflict. Any, any unifying religious cultural phenomenon that has a cos cosmogony in it is going to like meaning an origin story of the world is going to have conflict. The ancient Egyptians with Horus and Osiris, one of them dies, the other one's the father and has to resurrect him by killing the father's killer, etc., etc. Most of the ancient cosmogenies, stories of the creation of reality, involve some sort of either all-consuming father or mother and their child's triumph over that. And it's the child's triumph over that that stabilizes reality, that brings order to the chaos, that allows humanity to thrive. Think of ancient Greece. You had the Titans, the Panoply of Titans, including Kronos, that ate all of his kids until Zeus and Zeus's mom placed a rock in the, uh, the cradle instead of Zeus. Kronos ate that instead. And then Zeus cut open Kronos and fe freed all of his siblings. Same thing with Horus and Osiris in the ancient Egyptian panoply. And I'm certain there's more and I'm probably going to butcher that one because I'm not as, not as familiar, although I know it's, it's there as well. I would have to read through Jordan Peterson's 500 page maps of meaning where he lays out all of those, those religious overlaps. Um, but essentially the story is Osiris is the, the king that grows stagnant in maintaining tradition, gets assassinated, and it's Horus's struggle to get justice against his father's killer that brings Osiris back. And it's that perpetual cycle. Mm -hmm. Now that one's particularly interesting because if I am remembering it correctly, that, that is the, that is the cycle of humanity. We have structure. We bring order to the chaos. We build a state, capital S state, that state becomes oppressive and stagnant because it wants to maintain its tradition and it needs to be overhauled, leapfrogging into the next cycle. And that is... We all need to be the hero in our own story. Yeah. That's so where that, that is... comes from. Right, that's, that's the story of Pinocchio. Pinocchio's father, Geppetto, gets eaten by the whale. And what is he doing in the movie? Well, by the time Pinocchio gets down there, Geppetto's destroying his own boat to continue fishing in the whale's belly. He's gripping that tradition so tightly that it's killing him. Mm -hmm. And it takes Pinocchio destroying the boat against Geppetto's wishes because he couldn't see the next system to create the vehicle through which they escape. 
saving his father in the process, maintaining pieces of that tradition, maintaining that connection and inheritance while creating the new form of the system to carry them out and continue progress. And we have that psychological disposition that need to be there. And that's what ties us back to the extreme kayaking, to being a soldier, to social media. What do people do on social media? They post their triumphs. They post their struggles. They post a fabricated, hyper-real in the, the John Baudrillard sense version of themselves to be judged even the people who like it just seems like there's no normal way to do social media or at least like if you have like a following on social media it's because you've done the same thing to excess like and people know what to expect from you and they like that and it's a great like branding tactic but first you know when it encapsulates your whole life and I'm thinking of people who like only post like how much they weight lifted that day and their workout and how good it was and what they ate. Um, and the people who do the opposite and they're like, you know, I'm so depressed, this happened. And they post constantly about their divorce or something. And there's, especially on TikTok, it's the same thing again and again and again and again. And yeah, people it, like it, I guess. Well, it has to be predictable enough. Otherwise, you don't know if you're going to find what you're looking for. Yeah, it's... Right. The, there there has great... to be that certain amount of predictability. There has to be that certain amount of that connection to that tradition. Right. And that now I'm zooming out more, more metaphysically mm-hmm. with that. But just like we were talking about with, with Pinocchio, there has to be enough of that connection with tradition to to even deem an act worthy. Now, zooming back in, there has to be enough predictability, enough relatability. Otherwise, people won't log on. If you have, imagine if you had to relearn how to navigate spaces on Instagram every single time you logged in, would you continue using it? Hell no. Those learning curves are steep. But once you get your cycle, once you get that predictability, once you develop your construct for how to navigate that space, it gets a little bit easier. Now, this takes me to something else. The last main point that I wanted to to talk about that I look, okay, the second to last one, suicidality is another one. We can save that one for the end, though, you know, leave on a a cheery note. Um, But imposter syndrome, going back to construct validation you can have that psychological destabilization by someone else challenging your worldviews, even in a negative way, right? Trolling, for instance. You can also gain that, or I should say, speaking correctly, you can lose more psychological stability by trying to fit into that predictable pattern. It does not take much of people posting fabricated versions of themselves online before they start questioning who they really are. Do people like me or do they like the shit that I post? Do people like me or do they like the things I produce? Am I 
embodying the am I embodying the average of all of the peaks that I'm showing off on social media or am I just using those as fish hooks to try and drag myself out of depressive holes all right and another another perfect example and I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable with this one but it's teacher appreciation week and at lunch today students were given the opportunity to write on an index card a thank you note to one of their teachers um i know i got the most out of all the ninth grade teachers but supposedly one of my former students she, she's going to be the student body president of senior year next year told me that i basically got the most out of all the teachers in the school and my first thought was Am I living up to those expectations? Right here, here I am struggling through every single day. And these students adore me. Here I am struggling through every single day. And my kids like me, my wife loves me. I get told that I'm smart or that I'm hardworking and all of these things that I don't think that I am, but I'm trying to be. I had a, a thought and I wrote a paper. Um, I can't remember if I posted it to my Substack or not. I don't think that I have yet that. And we've kind of talked about it before. What did I call it? Um, archetypal accommodation right so william and orion my, my two little boys for the listeners at home orion's six william is eight about to be nine orion's about to be seven when they go out in the backyard and they play something that involves a father figure what do they do they pretend to be me because i'm their father that's who they have the most experience of what a father is but they don't pretend to be me they pretend to be the me that they think that i am now, the me that they think that I am is not the real me because I tailor who I am to age-appropriate levels for them. They've hardly seen me cry, not because I'm too manly for it or, or any sort of bullshit like that, but because I need to be that stability so that way they don't freak out because their constructs at six and eight for how to navigate the world involve a stable father to run to if they have problems. And how can they do that if they see me, see me having too many problems? Same thing. They think that I'm the strongest person alive, that I can fix anything, lift anything, kill anything that tries to enter our, our home and harm us, protect them from anything, none of which are true. But given their body of evidence is true to them. And they distill that down and they act that out. Now, what that ha what happens is the result of that, that's how they fabricate the archetype for father. So when they turn around and have interactions back with me, those are the experiences they're expecting to have. Not the flawed, imperfect, struggling through everyday me that I am, but the way more heightened and fabricated less flawed archetype that they pretend to be. Now, being self-aware creatures, what I think that we do is I think that we intuitively recognize that and we allow that burden of accommodating that imposed archetype on ourselves to embody 
that heightened version of us. And I think that's where imposter syndrome comes from. One thing that has like helped my perspective with that is to like, it's a lot of self-reflection. Am I this? Am I that? And then kind of flipping it and saying, this person thinks this about me. Uh, Are they dumb? Are they stupid? Are they intuitive? And, you know, most of the time your answer is going to be, they're not an idiot. Um, They have their own opinions. They are pretty intuitive. They're very smart. They can figure out things pretty quickly. And given those person's attributes, would they be wrong about me? And that has been my favorite, like, perspective switch, you know, is this person, you know, I don't think I could trick them (laughs) depending on who they are. So for me, that was helpful um, with imposter syndrome is sort of questioning, you know, really taking it outside yourself and questioning if this people, not just could this many people be wrong? Yes, that many people could be wrong, but taking it down to that micro level and could this specific person be so p- truly tricked? And um, probably not, because <laughs> you could trick, you know, when it's just faces in a crowd and when it's just, you know, a, a group of people, it's easy to think, all right, I've got them all tricked. But when you take it down to that more personal level, um, it's more difficult to convince yourself that you've fully hoodwinked them. No, that's that's really good. I really like that. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> that's not mine. That came from a therapist. <laughs> what do you think of my conceptualization of the cognitive processes that lead that archetypal accommodation that leads to imposter syndrome? Do you think that's fairly accurate? Yeah, we, cause what you're saying earlier, we do things with heuristics and it's cause it's faster and better and it's less energy mm, better in the sense of being more efficient <laughs> yeah less energy um and uh right yeah better is a little less <laughs> a little more subjective um, but it's faster and it takes less energy and so we're definitely doing that with choosing you know what outfit we wear every day like your aesthetic which is you know a, a total social media construct is what's your aesthetic? I only wear green. Um, we, it's easier to do that and to fall into that hole and just say, all right, I'm here. Um, and it takes less, you know, questioning out of your day and it takes less. Well, the idea is that it takes away questions, you know, how should I react to this? Um, should, am I overstepping my boundaries by interjecting here? Um, she's like, no, I'm the father. Of course I'm going to interrupt them. So yeah, I think it's the, for the, for all the reasons we said before, it's the way that we do things because it is less energy. It's faster. It works. Well, and I think on the flip side of that too, it gives us starting points, right? The, those heuristics might help us navigate, but they also help us orient, so my style is my style because that's how I've habituated into presenting myself. And so that way people that interact with me 
can have a more straightforward starting point, right? That's why we have conventions of like sir and ma'am when we're talking. Right? Those are starting points for how to be respectful in an interaction with someone that you've never met before. Think like the cashier at Walmart or something like that, right? We have these whole sets of social conventions that give us those starting points. Because if you had to relearn how to interact with a stranger every single time you got to a register, that would be crippling and you would never be able to function and navigate even hunter-gatherer times. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm so, so of like it, it, especially hunter-gatherer. Go, go ahead. I'm thinking if everything was like on the ATM and you had to pick like English or Spanish or other, and then you could interact. Like if yeah, there was that extra layer of like, what? Who are you? What? Oh, oh. Okay, now we can talk. It's too slow. Well, that's that's the reason that I can tell who's walking through my house without even opening my door. Mm -hmm. I recognize the individual footsteps, and I'm not just listening to the thud for like the mass of the person walking. The style too. Those starting points, especially back in hunter gatherer times. This is what I was trying to get to earlier. Um, when you had to rely on like your 15 or 20 member family group for survival and just one of you dying was crippling for the whole system, you had to easily be able to identify in a snap who was who and where they were and whether they were who someone that you thought they were. Because if they weren't, then they're a threat. Hmm. So you can tell, yeah, we probably learned to identify people by their footsteps alone well I, I think i think that's that's an extension of that because this goes back to style too where you could look across the field gathering and see mom brother grandma and know which ones they were mm -hmm. just at, at just at a quick glance because if you looked up and you didn't recognize them chances are they weren't somebody that you knew and the farther back mm -hmm. in time you go the more proportionally dangerous people that you don't know were. It's only, it is only in the past hundred or so years that even in the West, Western democracies, peace and safety was the general norm. The fact that I don't hear gunshots going all the time in my neighborhood, I do hear some gunshots from time to time, but the fact that I don't hear them all the time the fact that we're not getting bombed right now and that that has continued to not happen for a significant amount of time is kind of proof in the pudding that to some degree our institutions work. We can argue about how efficient and how humane they are, but it doesn't change the fact that it is exactly that that has given us the safety, security, and prosperity on average to allow us to even do something like this. I can have my door closed and my two littles in the living room playing the Xbox right now, knowing that there's a 99.99999% chance that no stranger is going to willingly do harm to me or my family. There is that 0.0001% chance, right? My guard's not totally down there. Like, like I, I say all the time uh, amongst the wife and friends, right? There always has to be a lifeguard on duty. But, right, if this was... 200 years ago, the only reason that the kids would be 
too far out of sight is because you didn't have any other choice. Think of like the child labor in like 1900 or something like that, where you had these, these factory families where to have a kid meant one of you couldn't eat. So as soon as possible, that kid had to start producing and providing for the family and pulling their own weight. Right. And, and, and I think that is what would drive allowing your child at a younger and younger age to go out into the infinitely complex and dangerous unknown of the real world. Man. I wonder if that kind of cycle of like you're younger and younger and you get more access has kind of been reflected in people who give their two-year-old an iPad and let them watch whatever. If that's kind of, if we're able to parallel that. I don't, that, that's interesting. There, there might be something there. I, I can't rule it out entirely, but I don't know how much of that is kind of instinctual the instinctual need to start preparing our children to leave us because that's what we do parents raise children to leave them right and and this is freud's devouring mother concept that to be to do your job as a parent the good mother necessarily fails to do your job as a parent to protect your children from the world is crippling to them because when they inevitably go out into the world, they don't know how to navigate the inevitable hazards of the chaos of the dark outside of the campfire light, metaphorically speaking, you know, tying it earlier to our why we're afraid of the dark type of thing. Um, I don't know how much of that the, the iPad is that or it makes it maybe stop crying yeah it maybe even could be the devouring mother Mm -hmm. baby stops crying give in to kids demands because you don't want to be the mean parent you want to be the nice parent you want your kid to like you something along those lines and i don't fault anybody for that because i want my kids to like me too and it is. It's called tough love for a reason because it's tough on the kids and it's tough on the parent too. Because, you know, going back to imposter syndrome, this is another perfect example. If I have to discipline my child, I'm a good father. But am I the good part? Right? I might be doing them a favor five years from now when they have enough self-discipline to keep themselves out of serious trouble. But at least in the short term, I'm not good. I'm taking something away from them. I'm restricting their liberty in some way. I'm disciplining them. And that's tough. This kind of reminds me of like, I'm certainly not an expert, but I work with a lot of parents who are trying to control their kids and they're kind of like two types. And the one type is I'm a good parent because my... (laughs) Baxter. Um, I think that was Taylor. He's home from work. Um, So there's kind of two types of parents. And the first type is I'm a good parent because my kid wants for nothing. And then there's the I'm a good parent because my kid works for everything. And they're both right. And your kid can turn out great either way. Um, You can meet your kid's every need and teach them everything that they need. 
and they can turn out okay. Yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say by that, but there's not a wrong way to do it because it just it's a person by person basis. No, no, no. Either that's going to work for that kid or it's not going to work for that kid. As a parent, there's a wrong way. There's a whole lot of wrong ways. And we stumble right. <laughs> into those more often than not because there's no one right way. This is what we saw with COVID yeah. education last year with the the 75% remote learning. There's no one, nobody knew in the institutional hierarchy of education, nobody knew what right looked like, which means all mm-hmm. of us very quickly found what wrong looked like. Because, because we didn't have a construct with which to navigate that abstract space. Now we kind of do. It's a better way to put it. You know? Right. Um, now we do have that construct. We've established that loose boundary of what works and what doesn't. And now we can start nuancing and fine-tuning it. Now, taking all of this back to social media, if we tie everything together that we were saying about imposter syndrome being the hero in our own story, ruthless critique of trolls, just for the simple fact, be it humor or the fact that, you know, they're overcompensating for some deficiency in their life, such as their own depression. And I think you've got a pretty pernicious and perfect cocktail of adverse sensory stimuli pointed surgically straight to the oldest part of your evolutionary brain. Yeah, I ended up having to put on timers on all of my apps Um, because the Google Pixel has a really good timer. And once it loses time, you can't fix it unless you go back into your settings And then my iPad, I also have timers on, but the Apple timers let you add 15 minutes with one click on that same page. And so I spend way more because you're halfway through a page and you need to get through that page or you're halfway through your candy crush level, or you're halfway through typing out this really heated response to some asshole that's trying to troll you on social media. And you just need, you just need two more minutes, but you'll take the 15. Yeah. And so I found that the strict, like, I'm so glad I don't have an iPhone because I would not have been able to get my screen time down without having a strong lock on it, which I just, I mean, I'm sure you could like willpower your way through it, but why when you can just do a lock and it works just as well. And I, I wonder if that's a generational thing. Now, my, my case is unique because not only did we not have smartphones readily available at an affordable enough price for the majority of people to have them until after I graduated high school? And then I didn't have my first real smartphone until I came back from Germany in 2011 and I got the iPhone like 4S or something like that, which kind of feels ridiculous to say now given all of the numbers and acronyms that we have on everything. But because my formative years, both the traditional, so, you know, from birth to about five, and the psychosocial, which I think middle school years are formative years for for building the foundation of your identity. 
And then after that, everything else is kind of builds off of those two pieces put together, right? You have your traditional, um, traditional upbringing that kind of cements a starting place for family values, cultural values, how to navigate spaces. And then you have that psychosocial foundation of identity that gets imprinted on top of that. And those form like your two pillars of you cognitively. Um, but because we didn't have smartphones when I went through that, I don't find myself needing timers. I do find myself, well, I do find myself using it to fill awkward silences, right? You're in a waiting room, but I also do make the conscious effort of, you know, if I'm going to use an object to keep people from interacting with me, I'm going to go old school and pick up a magazine, you know, Mm -hmm. and just bury my face in it that way. Um, I don't, I I don't do a whole lot. Most of what I do, I, I, I do Facebook. And I do, I use it for podcasts when I'm driving and stuff like that, but that's about it. I think there's too many cripplingly addicted, like 60 year olds on Facebook for me to say it's generational. It's gotta be, well, well, I guess there's a little bit of generational because everyone my age is on social media all the time and it's I don't know I don't see it as a problem that I need timers like if I didn't have timers I would figure out a different way um I if I if all social media crashed and burned tomorrow I would probably just crochet more in my free time um like I have other things not everyone has other things but you'd figure out some other things yeah um and I think it's pretty telling that an almost unanimous amount of people that have quit social media cold turkey have admitted significant psychological improvements in their mental health. I think that's pretty telling. Now, do you think the disposition towards... I don't want to conflate the two. We, we can separate them out to either or screen time or social media time. How do you think that falls on the big five personality spectrum? I don't think conscientious people would have a problem with it because they're the, necessarily the disciplined, hardworking types. Mm-hmm. I think trait neuroticism would because that's where you would go to for your dopamine fixes. When you have, when you subjectively feel a higher quantity of negative emotion per unit of negative emotion, right, you're gonna need more, more dopamine regulation to, to keep you stable. I don't know that's about a- agree, I don't know about agreeableness because that could go both ways because you were, you're more inclined to, if someone calls you out on it to agree and put it down but you're also more inclined to try new things, right? Which I I know trait openness Mm -hmm. would definitely be about that. Every single social media app that comes out, right? It's, it's a novel experience and open people tend to dive into that novel experience. I don't know what, what psychologist, what are your thoughts? Uh, You would need openness, I think, to get started. 
it's a tough one because there's something on the internet for everybody. And if you're looking for a very social and interactive experience, you can find it. And if you're looking for like, it's, it's too broad. The internet is too broad for it to appeal to only one type of person. What about this? I think this might be paradoxical. Extroverted people, I think, would be less inclined to have screen addictions. And introverted people are more inclined. Now, you would think at face value it would be the opposite because extroverted people thrive on social stimulation. But I don't know if the fabricated social media social interaction is going to fulfill an extrovert's needs whereas an introvert can get their social stimulation without the crippling anxiety of the social interaction that one makes sense to me that there might be a difference because it's being on facebook is incompatible with drinking at a bar with buddies yeah but so you would have to pick one and you would pick the one that you like better and yeah it's social media is incompatible with a lot of things um driving but people will do it anyway so you could do both but for the most part you're not going to be able to get you know to play you know two hours of pickup basketball with people and get really excited and have fun and scroll Twitter for two hours. Yeah, you know, to pick one, one or two. So yeah, I could see that. Um, okay, let me let me ask you this because we got about five-ish more minutes, and then I'm gonna have to jump off here. It's almost nine o'clock, and the boys need to get in pajamas, get ready for bed, and all that jazz. That's good. One of the articles that I read in preparation for this mentioned the potential use of social media infometrics as predictions of suicidality, self-harm, and general mental health. Now, first thing that jumps out at me is that is a huge violation of the Fourth Amendments, right? (laughs) You know, defining private property and private spaces and illegal search and seizure and and stuff like that. Um, But That knee-jerk reaction aside, it makes me wonder what, A, what patterns and trends they're looking at, and then B, what makes them think they can do something about those. That is the hard part because it's so subjective. And our mental health system is not very good at dealing with actively suicidal people and like rehabilitating. And there's the biggest problem, in my opinion, is that even if we identified those people, there's what are you going to do? Just take them to the hospital, right? Check them in, which doesn't work well. It's very traumatic. Um, It's very isolating. Well, it interrupts your job and everything. Also, too, we we have that, and this kind of goes back to my first point about the the Fourth Amendment. Um, If I post something and someone interprets that as suicidal or the algorithm interprets that as attempted self-harm, 
and mobilizes emergency services to come apprehend me. Like, and I know it's a slippery slope argument, but how long until you have people being falsely imprisoned against their will? And I, I don't mean to like lean too harshly into that terminology, but you can involuntarily commit somebody to a psychiatric ward. It's relatively difficult nowadays because we kind of figured out that you can't just drop someone off with a fake name and have them argue with the shrink and then them arguing with the name that they were given by you as proof that they are loony, right? It's, it's way more difficult than that now. But if, if the algorithm decides, then the information that the first responders have before they even get there, their heuristic, their construct for how to even begin their interaction with me is that I'm mentally unstable and I need to be restrained. I think the goal would be that when you identify those people and you reach out to them with whatever system is in place, because I do think we should be identifying those people and we should err on the side of over-identifying. Yeah, if, if, if people need help and like the, the first thing you're going to do if you're depressed or suicidal is you're going to cut off options. So you need to be glaringly reminded that here's options. Yeah. So the problem is if we over-identify, like we identify 100 people that are suicidal and 10 of them aren't, and those 10 people are in the hospital for three days and put on medication and doing group therapy and their, all of their belongings are taken away. You can't have necklaces. You have to wear special clothes so that you can't hang yourself. And it's, it's very, very extreme for the people who they really think are going to do it. And it's important to identify them, but not traumatize them. So yeah, I think if, even if the technology is there, I don't know what we would do with it. Okay. We're about to run out of time. I think this is a really good spot to end. And I think if you want to, it's a really good spot to pick up on a part two. So, um, yeah, because we didn't even get yeah. to talk about ADHD yet. Yeah. No, let, let's, let's do part two of social media. I'm totally cool with it. Um, and I'll yeah. shoot you a text because it's going to kick us off here literally any second. That's why I didn't want to be rude, but that's why I did the countdown for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll holler at you in a minute. All right. Sounds good. Bye.